0: Good to be back with you again. Um, if you're here as a visitor, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to the Book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will project the words for you. Although today they're a little little light colored, but I think they're they're uh, able to be read from the back. Uh, we are working through a, a series. In the book of Ephesians, um, and I've, I've titled the series, The Bride of Christ, it's kind of one of the themes of Jesus and the church, that, that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride, and so in the book of Ephesians, that's kind of one theme, and it, it really ties up at the end, and I've chosen uh, that as our theme. Um, for those of you that are married, I know a couple of things about you already, because I too am married. Uh, one of those is that I know you fight. Uh, I fight with my wife, yes, the pastor has fights with his wife, and I know you have fights and disagreements within your own marriage. Um, The second thing I know about you is that you deal with fights differently. Uh, When I get in a disagreement with my wife, um, I need quick resolution. Um, I can't can't move beyond it, like, we've got to resolve this, like, now. And the, the rest of you like to carry it around for a little bit, right? Um... Today's passage actually gives us um, some insight, it kind of gives us a window uh, to life in the church uh, and what that should look like for believers, uh, even believers that might think differently or act differently or, you know, behave differently or look differently. Um, And so today's passage is is all about uh, how uh, the church operates in diversity, and unity at the same time. And so today I'm going to we're going to look at uh, chapter 2 beginning in verse 11, uh, going down through verse 22 and I, and I really just want to want to just dive right in. So let's uh, let's attend to God's word uh, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask Him to bless the preaching of it. Father, I pray now that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of every heart here. Would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord. Would you come and would you do that, Lord, our rock and our redeemer? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I spent some time uh, down in the South. Uh, I did my my graduate degree down South in Mississippi, and it was a it was a whole new context for us. Um, I don't know if you've ever spent time down there, but it's we just felt out of our skin in in Jackson, Mississippi. It was it was very different for us there. It's a very slow moving kind of place, and we spent some time down there. Uh, we were there about four years, and one of the the greatest things uh, that that God brought into our lives. Uh, in that season of our life was, was the church. Um, my, my story, I kind of use this line. I, I might've used it with you if we've had coffee before, but kind of part of my story is that uh, I went to, to seminary. That, that's my graduate school. That's where pastors go to school after they go to college. But I went to seminary. Um, and my story was that I went to seminary in love with Jesus, but I, I left seminary in love with his church. And and a big part of that was was the church that God brought in, into our lives. And it was Redeemer Redeemer Church and Redeemer Church um, is a multi, intentionally multi ethnic church in a city that is very racially divided. So Jackson is still very racially and ethnically and culturally divided, and um, not not Jim Crow South or anything like that. But but it was it was divided and you could feel it. And when we went to Redeemer Church, we walked in the doors and we saw something that that I had never experienced. It was this. It was this kind of, this grandeur worship, like it was pretty high church, high liturgy kind of stuff, but it was a, just a multitude of people that looked different and acted different, worshiping together, and it was a, it was a beautiful thing, and so we were, we were part of that church for about four years, and, and that church belongs to a denomination, And and our church, Mosaic Church, belongs to that same denomination. You may or may not know that. Uh, But we are in in, in the Presbyterian Church in America. We use, our our short is PCA. So you may hear us talk about that. PCA does not stand for the perfect church in America. Um, It stands for Presbyterian Church in America. But we belong to a, a tradition and a heritage that is deeply embedded in the South. And just this past summer, our denomination meets annually. So we meet on a, on a corporate level annually to do church business and to conduct things. And, and something very significant happened at that annual meeting. And, and I bring it to your attention for a couple reasons. Uh, the, the, the thing that happened was there was a, there was a it's called an overture. That, that's how Presbyterians talk when we get together. It's called an overture. It's like a business term. But basically, there was a recommendation that our denomination confess sins of our past namely sins of racism. And so because of the South and civil rights era and and all that that entailed, there were some associations in our denomination with a a segregation type of mentality. In our denomination, I want to read a portion of this um, brought this recommendation up to confess our sins for a couple reasons, and I, I want to tie it into this passage. Let me just read just a portion of this confession. So, so the way it worked was, was this was brought forth and, and read, and it was, it, was, it was a beautiful thing, but, but here's how it, it, it goes. It says, God has once more given the PCA a gracious opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through confession, and through the fruits of repentance. And it goes on a little bit further, and the conclusion is this, it's encouraging us, and this is how I want to tie it to us. It says, in encouraging a denomination-wide vision for and commitment to a more racially and ethnically diverse church in obedience to the Great Commission. And so for you, that might not mean much because we are a fairly diverse city. Our, our church does look like our city, but our denomination does not. It has typically been older white men, and and their families. And and so I, I connect that to this because one I want to just you to know that we're connected to something much bigger than ourselves. So it's not just mosaic church like we are connected to a larger body. And there's something powerful and beautiful when unity is met in the midst of diversity. Um, let me let me bring it. A little closer to home so we don't live in the deeply divided south we live in in Albuquerque right so we, we divide over silly things right let me just lighten the mood for a minute we, we divide over red and green chili right we, we divide over Lobos and Aggies we divide over the east side and the west side right these are kinda silly things that we that we divide over but but, but on, a, on a real level uh, we, we still divide over socioeconomic status right like how much money we make. We, we divide over maybe zip codes or housing or, or cars, those kinds of things. We, we de- d- divide over denominational affiliations or, or even better, the non-denominational affiliations. right that, that becomes the new standard of pride. Theological traditions, we, we divide over many, many things. Here's what I want us to see in the passage today is that the gospel actually has deep implications for peace. That, that peace is, is the uh, pretty much primary implication of the gospel, peace with God and peace with people. And peace is not just the absence of conflict, right? It's not just getting along. Peace is the presence of wholeness, okay? So the big idea that I'm trying to communicate today is that peace with people starts when when war with God ends. Uh, That's really the thrust of this passage is, is the gospel brings peace to our lives, not only vertically with God, but also horizontally with each other. Um, The passage really gives us our points by using that word remember. Um, It's all over the passage. Basically, Paul's point in this is for us to remember two things. He wants us to remember who we were and he wants us to remember who we are. So remembering who we were and remembering who we are. Let's first look at remembering who we were in verses 11 to 12. Uh, we love to put identity markers on ourselves as people. Uh, football season's uh, coming up, right? And so I'm a, you're about to start showing your colors. I'm about to see who you really are right? Even Joe's here, it's Steelers shirt rose up this morning. I'm just saying that's three sermons in a row with a Steelers reference. Uh, I'll probably end it at that. But we love to put identity markers on our vehicles, right? P- political parties. Um, Christians love to do this. We'll put the fish on our cars or or even better, mosaic church stickers on our cars. If you've got one of those, they're at the door if you need one. Um, but we love to mark ourselves with our identity, right? In, in a variety of ways. Um That actually is fairly biblical. Um, If you look at the text, it, it uses this language, and it's so religious and so foreign to us. Like, I hope nobody's talking like this at the dinner table, but it talks about how, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, I'm just going to assume medically we kind of understand what that was because um, we still practice it pretty much in Western culture. But um, circumcision and uncircumcision was the identity marker for God's people. Like that was the sign and symbol that God put on his people to say, these are the ones that belong to me. And so very in the Old Testament, way back, this is Abraham, right? God made a promise to one particular people group, an ethnic group, Israel, Jews, right? And he put that sign on them. He said, you shall do this to all all the males, all the 12 12 days old and up and males. Mark them. You belong to me. And so what's happening here is, is the gospel's going forward and it's saying this is no longer just for Jews. This is not just for the ethnically, culturally, socially identified people of God. This is now open to the nations, And so that's who the Gentiles were. And when they use this terminology, it's it's a term of division. They, They were called the uncircumcised. In other words, they were the outsiders. They were the ones that did not belong. They were the outcasts. They were not part of God's people. And Paul reminds his readers who exactly they were before Christ found them. Look at the way the text talks about it in verse 12. Remember... At that time, you were separated from Christ. The the very source of life and peace that the Bible sets forth for us is Jesus. And Paul is reminding us that apart from him, before that, we were separated. He goes on to say that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Again, kind of religious type of language. But but the commonwealth of Israel was the people whom God's promise of blessing was put upon. And so apart from Christ, they were alienated from it. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, the text says. God had made particular promises to God's people and they were alienated from it, strangers to it. They had no hope. They were without God. In other words, they were utterly helpless and hopeless without God. That's who the Gentiles were, that's who you and I were. I think when we read language like that, it is so separated from our current circumstances that it just misses us, right? Like I've never been called uncircumcised Gentile, Uh, you know, like this is all distant language to me. Let me let me draw this in and, and kind of put some biblical categories on this for you. The Bible tells us that everybody knows God. Romans chapter 1, in fact, let me just read it so I don't botch that. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, tells us this. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then hold on to this, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, what the Bible is telling us there is there really are no atheists. I think when you and I think about people who are warring against God, we think about these aggressive atheists. Aggressive atheists do exist. You might be one of them. You know, aggressive atheists are those who, who live to prove that God doesn't exist, right? Their, their entire existence lives to prove something that doesn't exist. You can typically find these people living with their parents at home and on the internet. So if you're looking for them, they're out there. But Romans 1 actually tells us that that warring with God is actually just living life without reference to him. That that warring with God perhaps isn't as aggressive and active as you might picture it. It's actually a little bit more passive. And it's actually a little bit more deistic or it it talks about God a lot. Um, War with God is living life without reference to him. It's conducting your entire life as though he were not there, even though you know he is. It is conducting everything about the way you operate and do things, giving no thanks, no honor to the God who made you. Passive aggression towards God is what unbelief is. That, that we can kind of, it's the language of, you know, well, I believe in the big guy upstairs, that he's kind of, taking care of me, generally speaking. It's, it's this karma-ish type of teaching that's salted and sprinkled with a little bit of Christianity, so it kind of sounds biblical. But warring with God is actually an offense to God, and it actually gives us the rift with God. It divides us from him. Remembering who we are, were is, is very important, but remembering who you are perhaps is, is what Paul is the thrust of the passages. So let's look at remembering who you are uh, kind of in the rest of the passage. Uh, if you were here last week, um, the, the beginning of chapter two and the section we're in today are eerily, strangely alike. It's almost like a mirror. Uh, the, the beginning of chapter two, if you weren't here, was, was sounded something like this. You're really bad. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of his love for us, has done this. He he saved you by grace through faith, right? So it's this, you're worse than you think you are. God has rescued you from, from that. Today's passage does the same thing. Remember who you were and now know who you are. And it actually hinges, you know, the first 10 verses were on but God. Now this one hinges on but now in verse 13. But now you were at war with God, but now in Christ you've been brought near. I mean, it's the constant reminder that, that, that we were at war with God. There was no civility towards him. There was no casual, I'm cool with God, he's cool with me, and we'll just kind of operate on that level. The scriptures are very clear about what we were like apart from Christ. It talks about us as enemies of God. It says that we were warring against him, that we, that we were utterly rebelling against God, and we wanted nothing to do with him. It made us far from God. We were separated and alienated from him. But now, verse 13 tells us that outsiders are now made insiders. That, that those who were far are now brought near. And how did it happen? Well, it's, it's through the blood. You know, verse 13. 13, by the blood of Christ. Now, if you're new to Christianity, that's the stuff that starts to creep you out. When Christians start talking about how the blood of God covers them and we kind of use all of this language without unpacking it, it really, it really can be just a turnoff to people. So let me tell you why the blood brings you near. So you are an outsider estranged from God. You were made to worship and adore that God. And when you don't do that, you naturally incurred his wrath and his judgment. Because he's a holy and a just and a good God, it w- it's unacceptable for him just to say, okay, I'll just kind of forget about your past. I'll just, we'll sweep it under the rug, right? We'll just kind of we'll act like that never happened. I'll be a good dad and I'll just forget that never happened. But, but God is too good for that. And so your rebellion against him has actually incurred judgment on yourself. And God would be perfectly good if he left it like that and he judged all of us. Like we deserve that. But now God in the person of his son sent somebody to pay that penalty for us. And the penalty wasn't just you know, some suffering and a hard life. It was death and it was judgment. And so on Jesus's cross, what we see is the son of God bearing the wrath of his people. And what we see is the son of God suffering what we should have suffered. And the penalty was paid in full so that outsiders could now be brought inside. Reconciliation, peace is now found through that one. The text tells us that it's not even just peace God's offering us, it's actually that, that Jesus is our peace. Look at look at verses 14 down through 22. What what did Jesus do? Well, verse 14 says that he is our he is our peace. And he made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here here's here's the idea. In the early church, there were Jewish believers, there were Gentile believers, okay? Anybody who was not part of ethnic Israel, Jews, were now outsiders. The New Testament's telling us that those outsiders are now in the family of God. They're brought and they're made into a new community. They're made into one. And the hostility is now gone. So, so what, what, was the, what was the hostility? Uh, if you have a study Bible, you know, some, of, some of the notes and some commentators suggest that, that there was this wall in the temple that divided the Jews from the Gentiles. And that's true. It, it was there. Uh, There there was an abolishment of the physical division. But the text tells us the barrier between people within the church was the law. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments. In other words, it was the Jewish practice of God's law that became a barrier to inviting everybody in. Do we not do that today? is there not some sort of cultural christianity that we impose on outsiders and it becomes a barrier worship wars styles this is the only way it's to be done clothes if you wear a t-shirt god forbid to church forget it if i see your legs and they're shorts here so we're cool with that but but we we begin we begin to impose These laws and these commandments on people and it becomes a barrier. And the Bible's telling us God has broken that down. So what was the result? Well, hostilities killed and a new creation is made. And the result was that we become three things. We become children, we become citizens, and we become a temple. Let me quickly and briefly touch on those the passage tells us that we become children with God. You can see that in verse 18. It says, For through him, that's through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to God, to, in one spirit to the Father. God the Father has now made us sons and daughters of himself, and we belong to the family We have full access. There's nothing that's denied to us. Any good father gives his children what they want on some levels. The analogy breaks down because I don't give my kids everything they want. But God the Father has made himself accessible to his children. The second thing it tells us that, that we are is that we're citizens of God's household. There is no secondary class of who belongs and who does not. There is no tier. There is no hierarchy. You're either in God's household or you're not. The third thing it tells us, and this is perhaps in my mind, the most profound thing is that we are a holy temple in the Lord. That in Christ we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Like Again, I think that's one of those things that as kind of Western 21st century Christians we don't get, Do you know what the temple was? The temple was and always had been where God was present with his people. Even after their deliverance from Egypt, when they're wandering through the wilderness, they had a temporary temple. It's called the tabernacle. It was was mobile setup. It was was a church plant on, on many levels. And they would set this up in order to worship God and God would be present through cloud and through fire. As, as the wilderness kind of wrapped up and they landed in the promised land and the temple was built by Solomon, God's presence was there. And so now, here, the New Testament is telling us no longer does God dwell in a building, no longer does God dwell in a city, God dwells in a people. And that's what the local church is that this, his body, is where he dwells. And this, his body, is where peace is to be the priority. Let me kind of apply some of that. If you have peace with God, if you've been made right with God through the work of Christ, it is a necessary implication that you have peace with people. Um, What God is doing in the local church is he is setting up an outpost for his kingdom on earth. This small, ordinary sometimes strange group of people is God's representation in the world. And so with all of the conflict and all of the division and all of the separation and all of the hostility that we are constantly surrounded with, this is the place where peace is to rule. God is building a new community and when this new community lets peace rule over it, God's presence is felt and known. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where you could you felt like you were walking on eggshells. Maybe it's that church that wouldn't let you wear shorts and a t-shirt. You know, whatever that is. But, but where the, the, the tangible feel of the congregation was though is you did not belong there. If there's anything that this text is telling us, it's that when we believe the gospel, it creates a culture. So if we believe that God has made us right through the work of Christ, all by his grace, none of our own doing, we come empty handed, he's done everything to secure us, how can we now not live like that with each other? How can the church be a place of hostility and a place of barrier building? Ephesians chapter two is is compelling us to know the answer to two questions. The first is, do you have peace with God? You cannot read this passage and not leave it asking, am I still at war with God? Maybe, maybe you're bitter, you know, maybe there's some, some, some residue in your heart about some past history that you have in your life, some some hardship that perhaps you never got answers to, and that's lingering, and it's left you at war with God. Or, or maybe you're just maybe you're just, your story is de- defined by that aggressive rebellion that I was talking about. Maybe you are an aggressive atheist, right? Like, you, your life has persisted in proving the God who doesn't exist, and now you hear about this God, and perhaps this is news to you. Or maybe you're just that passive person, like, that lives life without reference to God as though he doesn't exist, just kind of going along, just kind of skipping along through life, and whatever comes your way and there's no acknowledgement of God, there's no honoring of God, there's no thanking God, there's no recognizing God and, and your life has primarily been defined by that. Peace is received today and it's offered to anyone today who would want that and it's offered through a stricken and suffering savior who rose and, and conquered your death and he conquered your punishment. But the second question that this, this question or this passage is asking us is that, do you have peace with people? Do you have peace with people? Um, when you're answering this question, ask yourself the harder questions. Who is it that you're avoiding? Who is it that you don't want to run into at Smith's? Like, like you might even just whisper that prayer, like, God, please don't let them be here today. Like, who is that? Um, Who is it that you have a painful history with and that being in their very presence makes it awkward and uneasy for you? Who is it that you owe an apology to? Those are the hard questions. And if we say that we love the gospel, that God has made us right with himself, yet we are unwilling to reconcile with others, we are still at war with God. And so we are functionally denying the gospel in practice. The vertical peace that God gives us with himself must manifest itself in the horizontal peace with each other. And so I would commend you. Be a peacemaker. Pursue peace. Make it a priority. You know, we we don't have to, we, we are not the ones that are capable or in control of resolving situations, but we certainly must try and we must prioritize it. Um, I want to conclude with the story here today. Um, it, 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 it touches on kind of the, the racial tension again because, again, the, the tension in this church that, that was originally reading this letter was ethnic and racial. It was Jew and Gentile. And we are fooling ourselves if we don't think that that still exists, even in our own Western, uh, Southwestern culture. But I want, to, I want to mention a story. It's another Olympic story. So... Forgive the olympic references but it's 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 just there. It's not even a current olympic story. It's a it's a it's one from the past. I mentioned one from the early 90s. I think it was last week or the week before. This one actually came from the late 60s. So this is the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And some of you, not to call out ages and numbers, but some of you may have watched those Olympics and others of us did not, um, but we know about the stories of them. And in 1968, it was kind of at the height of the human civil rights era. Uh, It was actually the year that Martin Luther King died, and and all of these different things were going on in our culture, and and during the Olympics, um, there were two men, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. I think I have a picture if we can pull it up. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, um, first and third place there, if you can see the podium. Uh, they were representing and making a rebellious gesture uh, to a culture at large that was viewing them. They, if you can't tell, they're, they're two, two black men, and they've got black gloves on representing the Black Panthers movement. Uh, they, you can't see their feet in the picture, but they would have been barefoot, um, exemplifying the poverty that, that the black community was experiencing. And in the picture, I actually want to talk about the white guy. So, this is the seemingly intruder on the picture. Like, I don't know if you sense it, but when I see that, it feels like there might be some tension there, Um, but there's actually not. Um, That man's name is Peter Norman. And Peter Norman was an Australian. He was an Australian runner. In fact, he still holds the Australian record for the 200 meter uh, race. And Australia at the time was uh, part of a very segregated uh, uh, law, a apartheid law which d- uh, division and segregation was very, very rampant. And uh, right before this picture happened, uh, the two men, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, had actually told Peter Norman what was going to go down. And part of the problem was that the two men uh, only had one pair of gloves. And so Peter Norman was actually the one that came up with the idea, well, you should each wear one glove, and then the problem solved. But the other part of Peter's participation in this gesture was that he had asked to wear a Olympic badge signifying human rights at the time. And um, the story goes on, uh, he was the unnoticed, unclaimed character in this story. These two men would have been celebrated for what was now a victory for human rights. It was a, it was a cele- they were celebrated champions uh, in the country. They were banned from the Olympics for their gesture, but nonetheless, they were celebrated. Well, Peter Norman went back to Australia, and he was ostracized by his community. He was, he was an outsider. He found it hard to find work, He actually fell into deep depression and alcoholism, and he uh, was given an opportunity to condemn his association with his co-athletes in exchange for a pardon from the system that had ostracized him, and he refused to do it. He simply refused. Norman chose to be a sacrificial lamb in order to pursue peace for other people. He was the uncelebrated, unknown, Person until he died in 2006 later on before he died the second picture there was a statue erected in San Jose State University and you'll notice that Peter is not in this picture he was unknown he was uncelebrated but he was not unappreciated when he died in 2006 John Carlos and Tommy Smith those two men were his pallbearers they carried him to his burial And one of the men said this in an article I read. This is Tommy Smith. He said, Peter Norman paid the price with his choice. It wasn't just a simple gesture to help us. It was his fight. He was a white man, a white Australian man among two men of color, standing up in the moment of victory, all in the name of the same thing. Christians, we too ought to be unknown and uncelebrated pursuers of peace. We must be willing to pursue peace at all costs to ourselves. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave up everything to purchase peace for you and for me. May we, Mosaic Church, be a place where peace dwells richly, where diversity is celebrated, and God is praised because of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, It is so against our inclination to pursue peace at great cost to ourselves. Lord, I'll be the first to admit, my tendency is to be with people that I like and that are like me, that believe and think like me, that dress and act like me. And so Lord, we pray that a passage like this from your holy Bible would fall heavy on hearts, that we would that we would first and foremost know that we have peace with you and if if we don't have that, Lord, that you would make that a reality. Lord, that we would pursue peace with people that we are at odds with, that we are warring against and we would see that as an act of war against you. And Lord, we pray that you would build here a church that is built um, not only on the gospel that affects our relationship with you but a a gospel that reflects our relationship with each other. So Lord, would you do that for your own namesake, we pray these things in, in Christ's name.